simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalists Private Podcast. We're here with our good friend, Ian Morgan Cron. He has a new book out. It's called The Story of You. Mm. And I got to tell you, Ian, we're going to dive into this. We start with this little segment called More About Less. But before we do that, I just want to acknowledge that we have nine people. We brought nine people into the studio today, counting mm. me and Ryan. Yeah. Because last time I checked, we count as people, Ryan. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, there are nine personality types, according to the Enneagram. Thank God we're not doing Myers-Briggs. There'd be 16 people here, and I'd be just out of my mind. That's right. <laughs> You've simplified it for us, though. Yeah. yeah. We're here with the inventor of the Enneagram, <laughs> Ian Cron. <laughs> my mother calls it the Enemagram. <laughs> <laughs> She's nine, 93 and still says stuff like oh that. My I've God. had one of them. That's a totally different test. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're going to be talking about everyone in this room, but to their faces today. That's That's right. Right. Before we get into that, though, I have a excerpt from your book. I want to talk about the 10 signs that you're living in a broken story. We call the segment more about less. It's really just a jump off point to talk about something that we want to talk about. Would you mind reading the section from your own book? This whole page? Well, and the next page. They're bullet oh points gosh. mostly, so you should be fine. Okay, <laughs> people sit down. All right. Uh, okay, signs you're living in a broken story. Yes. All right. If we refuse our soul's summons to change our childhood narrative, we end up stuck. We want to change, but we don't know how. At a very basic level, there's a powerful reason why it's difficult to recognize that these old childhood stories are running the show. They're always there. As the old saying goes, no prison is more secure than the one we don't know we're in. Mm. Do you want to know if you might be living in an old broken narrative? Consider these clues. You look in the rearview mirror of your life and see a debris field of broken relationships. Oof. You keep landing in the wrong job. You tend to stay in relationships far beyond their expiration date. Mm. You're physically, emotionally, and spiritually burned out and don't know why. You get angry in ways that seem disproportionate to the crimes. Mm. You react impulsively to people and circumstances instead of responding mindfully to them. Mm. You have a nagging suspicion you're reading off a script someone else handed you. You can't stop the constant negative self-commentary streaming through your mind. You've developed addictions that you know are making pain or masking pain you don't want to confront. You feel disappointed that your life has turned out to be smaller than you dreamed it would be. You might already be aware of living in a broken story and maybe even try to change it. You've read books and gone on retreats, attended conferences and hired coaches and counselors, joined recovery groups and gotten sponsors. But even when you know the messages you internalized as a child aren't working for you as an adult, it takes more than Pilates or walking on hot coals at a Tony Robbins seminar to overcome them. We're all fiercely loyal to our broken narratives because who would we be without them? Mm. It's like you were describing my 28 year old self. <laughs> Which parts in particular stood out to you? Oh my goodness. The, uh, the, the, the past of broken relationships, um, wanting to go to a Tony Robbins event. I couldn't afford to go to a Tony Robbins event, but man, if I could afford it, I absolutely would have went the retreats and yeah. What about you? The uh, getting disproportionately angry when the crime does not fit the anger. Yeah. Um, that resonates with me today in particular. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ian, I want to go through some things with everyone in the room here, but can we just talk about your book, the story of you? 
you're talking about the Enneagram journey to becoming your true self. That's the subtitle. Why is the Enneagrams, why have you found it to be so useful for you and the other people you've worked with? Sure. Well, for those who don't know, the Enneagram is this ancient personality typing system that teaches there are nine basic personality styles in the world, Mm -hmm. one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to feel safe, to cope, to protect ourselves, and really to navigate the new world of relationships we find ourselves in. Right? Mm. And, and really importantly, each of those nine types has an unconscious motivation that powerfully influences how that type predictably and habitually acts, thinks, and feels from moment to moment. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, right from that, you can probably tell how helpful would that be for me, right? Or for to understand myself and to, and to understand those around me in the world, people I love, people I interact with at work or, or wherever, right? To get a sense of what's their inner terrain like? Why are they the way that, why do they show up for life the way that they do? Mm. That right? in a sense has been just as helpful as understanding myself, as understanding the people around me. That's why I yeah. find it so fascinating that we have nine different personalities in this room because if you better understand yourself and you better understand the people around you, you can also understand how to interact with them oh. differently. Yeah, and and because one of the greatest mistakes I think people make in life is to presume that your way of seeing the world is normal, mm. because that's not the truth, right? Yeah. And if the Enneagram is true, there are nine normals. Yeah. And if you can understand how different people see the world, then you can interact with them more wisely. You can love them much better. Mm. You can empathize uh, more deeply with their their struggles and challenges in life yeah. and y- you can move you can have a relationship with them in, in such a way that there's so much less friction yeah and understanding more understanding man and uh because yeah like josh being a four he's a i'm a, a three bit, oh i'm sorry a three he's you've already a, misunderstood yeah that. right exactly <laughs> no i mean I, I, there's just some like some ocd things where um if i didn't know him as well as i did i would be like man like why does he make such a big deal about you know, a, a cup being uh, in the shot or whatever it is, but understanding his personality type or even uh, with my my wife. I mean, understanding kind of where she's coming from. Yes, it helps you accept people and really get to a point of appreciation for that person in a way. Absolutely. It, it is more than anything else in my life. It has helped me to interact with other people and with myself in much wiser ways, mm. you know, very practical ways. Like I know because you're an Enneagram 7 and I guess we'll kind of maybe go through the, the list in a second maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, let's but, go through it. But, you know, I, I know in general, right, how to be with you and how to be with you as a three. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, this isn't magic. It's not like I found this in a cave in Syria with Harrison Ford, you know, like in... <sighs> You know, whatever you know what I'm saying. Like it's it's like it's a it's a really a proven typing system. It's not a labeling system. Yeah. It just helps me understand. Okay, that's how you are. That's how you are. This is how I am. This is why it's working. This is why it's not working. Here's how I can communicate. Here's how I can avoid conflict. Here's how I can love you better. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's start where your book starts. You actually okay. start with the eights. Yeah. So our resident eight is Danny Unknown right here. Damn. He he does uh, audio video stuff for us. He's the one who's tweezing out the TikToks from this so we can post those on Instagram and YouTube and 
TikTok. And so he finds <laughs> uh, he finds all those little videos for us. He takes all the photos for our thumbnails. At one point, you just thought maybe this was a thumbnail presentation. Yes. And Are I was we- worried about my warped hands because I was told <laughs> to keep them behind my back. <laughs> I'm sorry that he insulted your hands, but he's very disagreeable. Right. <laughs> So let's talk about eights. Let's start with with Danny. What what do you know about him just by me telling you he is an eight and what you've observed in this short period of time? And of course, there's also sort of the healthy, the moderate and the unhealthy version, right? Yeah, right. Because the personality operates on a continuum from health to unhealth. Or maybe we could say self-awareness to lacking self-awareness, right? Mm. So what I know about Danny is if he's an eight or what I... Uh, here's what I know about his probable way of moving through the world, okay? Eights are called the challengers. Uh, They are very assertive, uh, blunt, can be domineering when they're not very self-aware, sometimes aggressive. uh, They're perfectly fine with confrontation. It's very comfortable for them. They don't necessarily like it, but they're not afraid to step into it, right? Now, the unconscious motivation of the eight is a need to assert strength and control over others in the environment in order to mask tenderness and vulnerability and weakness. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of that defended behavior is about uh, hiding your internal tenderness. And so eights actually, I love eights, right? I love any number when it's healthy, right? Yeah, but sure. but what I love about eights is they they have this very defended exterior, but they have a very squishy interior. So how very does a healthy defended. eight move through the world? Well, um, they really have to move from what we call the passion or the deadly sin mm. of lust, which is not necessarily in the sexual sense of the word. It's just that you want immediate engagement with others in the environment right away. You know what I mean? Like you love to be around people who can power up as much as you can, right? And But to move from lust toward a virtue of innocence, which is recovering that childhood belief that I can live in this sort of vulnerable uh, place in the world, uh, showing my heart, right? An undefended heart in, in the world. That's part of the journey for you so that people can operate in, in a healthy way with you and you can have the relationships you long for. Well, mm. let's move on to the nine because oh, that's next nines. in your book. I love nines. Where's and, my nine again? And so we, what I realized when we, first, when we first got here, we had a two through eight in, in our studio, on our team. And then, then I realized like, I was talking to Beulah. She's the gal who painted these beautiful paintings. She did the interior design for our new studio. I'm like, we need a one and a nine. She's like, my husband and I are a one and a nine. She's a one, and her husband, Alex, is a nine. So Alex is a friend of ours, and apparently he has also stolen our wives. <laughs> Which, uh, thank God he's a nine and not a three. You know what, with that face, I don't blame our wives. <laughs> no, no, no. He's seven feet tall, yeah. but he's, uh, he's also the the peacekeeper uh, of the group. So he decided that he, he agreed to join us today so that we could, uh, we could go through this experiment together. Tell me a little bit about Alex. Well, they're called the nines are called the peacemakers. And we also, they've been given the moniker of the sweethearts of the Enneagram. Ah, oh, mm. amen to that. Okay. <laughs> so they're warm, uh, supportive. They, they are just the most laid back number on the Enneagram. Hakuna Matata, mm. right? Yes. Uh, they are uh, 
just lovely human beings. Now, the unconscious motivation of the nine is a need to maintain connection with other people, to uh, you know, really uh, protect inner and outer peace, mm. right? And one of the ways they do that is by avoiding conflict at all costs oftentimes, right? And so they'll merge with the agenda and the priorities and the viewpoints and the opinions of other people because they're worried that if they disagree or if, they, if it even causes a little bit of conflict, they just want to go with the flow. Now, the danger of that, of course, is that you can become selfless. Right. Mm. I, I, I think it's relatively easy for a nine to mm -hmm. sort of fall into the background, yes. even when they're six foot seven. <laughs> and... Um, and the fascinating thing is, if you're a healthy nine, though, you're actually involved in yes. the peacemaking, so to speak. Right. So what happens for the healthy nine is that uh, they actually begin to believe that their presence really matters in the world, mm -hmm. and they begin to really assert their voice. They find their voice, and they begin to live into it. They're not as afraid of, of conflict. They know that conflict is actually a way to make connection with other people, that by avoiding conflict you actually are creating disconnection with other people. And so just finding their energy, their instinctual energy for life and asserting it strongly into the world. And what's their deadly sin? Uh, well, the deadly sin uh, for them is sloth. But it's not physical laziness, and it's not that they're not busy. Sometimes they're busy, but sometimes it's doing inessential things, mm. right? And so for them, the it's really a failure to be uh, energized or to invest in themselves as human beings to really develop into a, a def very f defined and clear self in the world. Huh. And so the, we say that the virtue they have to attain is right action, right action, right? Just like taking a stand and acting with, in fact, when a nine is healthy, they look like a healthy you. Oh, three. Okay. They start to have to-do lists and tasks, and they get clear, and they go for it, and they have goals, and they, they crush them. But when they're not healthy, it's just precisely the opposite. They can kind of get lost and distracted and have trouble making decisions, and they go with the flow too much, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We're going to move over. Right next to Alex is my wife, Bex, and she's a one. Yeah. What is the one? Well, we call them the improvers. We used to call them the perfectionists, but they... They were offended by that, so I changed it to the improvers, which is also a really, actually, even better description of them. Uh, one's reliable, organized, conscientious, dependable, you know, uh, get it done kinds of people. Uh, they um, are people who their unconscious motivation is really, they, they tend to confuse, they tend to think that good people get rewarded in life and bad people get punished. Yeah, they, they, they have a, a sense of justice, right or wrong. Yes, they tend to be black and white thinkers. Mm -hmm. That's part of the journey for them is learning to see in gray. Yes. In both ends of life. And part of what motivates them is this real need to be good, and they feel uh, the, their strategy might be to attain that is to perfect themselves, others, and the world. Right? Mm -hmm. So when they're not very healthy... <laughs> <laughs> so when they're not healthy... You can begin to feel this, like this sense of there's nothing I can do to live up to this person's high internal standards. Right, <laughs> right. And like, and 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 it's like this feeling that when they're not healthy, again, that like they're you'll feel like they're very critical, and can be even can get, leak a little bit of shame. 
Mm. Uh, Leaking shame is a fascinating way to put it. Yeah. I don't see most of this in Bex, but I could see where that would be if she was an unhealthy one. Yes. Mm. She's probably the healthiest one I know because she becomes very comfortable with the gray areas and you could tell it's not her natural impulse right. Mm. Right. where where it's right or wrong it's justice or injustice right it's good or bad she sees it that way but then she also makes room for the uh maybe maybe right or wrong is situational here maybe mm. it's perspectival yes. and i've especially noticed that that change over the last seven years before it was much more black or white and now there's so much more room for for so many gradations in between. Okay, so you're describing something wonderful. And and by the way, when I'm describing these types, they're going to sound a little negative. Right. Okay? Yeah. And uh, the reason is, is because the Enneagram reveals that what's best about you is what's worst about you, and what's worst about you is also what's best about you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's not like strengths finders. Who doesn't want to take that test? You know what I'm saying? It's <laughs> right. like, I can tell me about my strengths all day long. Right. But, well, I am handsome. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I am an achiever. I crush things. I, like, like yeah. you know, you might be described in, in any, I mean, in strengths finders world as being, you know, a high achiever. We'll get to how awesome I am in a couple of people a here. Yeah. But my point is, is that the journey for the one then, the, the journey for the one is to move from anger because there's a lot of anger in eights, nines, and ones. Eights, the anger goes outward. Mm. The, uh -huh. For the nine, they go, what anger? I'm not angry. Oh. And then the anger comes out passive aggressively. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm <laughs> getting some serious it. nods here. And then for the one, it's the anger goes internally toward the self. Mm. I'm never living up to my high internal standards. I'll never be good enough. And when they do meet those standards, they up the bar. Mm. Yeah. Right? And so it's never enough, right? And so they is that have, why she wore makeup today? <laughs> That's why I did. But my point is, <laughs> but my point is that that they have to move from the deadly sin of anger that other people aren't as concerned as they are to about perfecting the worlds and the, the world and themselves, uh -huh. right? They have to move from that to serenity, which is you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Yes, yeah. to be okay with the fact that we live in a perfectly imperfect world. And it's okay. They don't have to fix everything. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. And nor do I. Right. Yeah. That's yes. important for the one. Nor do I. Ah, beautiful. I think it's interesting with Bex because she is a dietitian. Am I, am I, is that the right label? Oh, it's yeah. a good job for a one. I was just going to say, I'm like, it's like she picked the perfect job for herself. You mm -hmm. did because you get to tell others how to improve themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Except that over the last several years. I can't hear you. You're not on mic. But, go ahead. We'll repeat <laughs> yeah. what you said. Like yeah, I've kind of fallen away from the, that role. Oh, mm. she, she, yeah. As I've seen more black and white, Yeah, that's so beautiful. That's good. Yeah. She's saying over the last few years, she has moved away from the black and white. It's actually become more difficult with her in working with clients cause, because before it was, mm. hey, here's what you do. If you do this, it's right. If you don't do that, it's wrong. And now right. it's like, well, actually... Uh, the the problem is much deeper than you need to change this one habit or you yeah. need to change this one thing about what you eat. Yeah. And so it's um it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, mm -hmm. it absolutely is. You know, I, I laughed the other day. I realized that most dental hygienists I know are all ones. <laughs> and you kind of want that. <laughs> right. Right. You kind of want it because you want them to get all that stuff out of your mouth. But on the other hand, I have a lot of one, like I have one now as a dental hygienist. It's like, you need to floss more. Mm. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, you have to do this. You have to do that. And I always leave going, 
I'll never, she'll never like me. I'm going to come back in six months and she's going to be like, you still have like stuff on your team. It's like, oh, okay. It's so funny. Like, in fact, so I floss every day and she's like, well, you need to floss differently. And yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Not so, very self-aware ones. We move past the one. Yes. And um, we go to a two. Whom we have right here. Mm-hmm. Alabama is our resident two. Who is the two? All right, before I go on to her, can uh-huh. I just say nine and one combinations is the most frequent pairing of people on the Enneagram that I see. And mm. you are part you have a partner who's a one? I think he just took backs from me. <laughs> There's nothing I can do about it. Nines and ones. I don't know what that's about. Anyway, twos. They're called the helpers, sometimes the givers. Mm. Uh, warm, supportive, generous, helpful kind, uh, usually very upbeat, uh, you know, kind of, you're blushing, (laughs) right? But um, they are people who really have a need to be liked, Mm. fundamentally. And we all want to be liked, but twos really want to be liked, and they really want to be appreciated. And their strategy when they're not very healthy for attaining that is by meeting the needs of others Mm. while, while not acknowledging their own personal needs. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like twos are like, so they're the most interrelational number on the Enneagram. Like they go to bed at night thinking about relationships. They get in the, up in the morning, they're thinking about relationships. You are more attuned to what everybody is think, feeling in this room, feeling in this room than anybody else in here. Right? Wow. Like, what did you do for me when I got here? You're getting me drinks. You're meeting my needs. You actually anticipate needs and meet them. Mm. That can be really wonderful if it's altruistic, but when you start to give strategically and in a calculated way to win the approval and appreciation of others, it kind of turns to a crap show. Mm. Mm. So she's been manipulating me this whole time, you're saying? (laughs) With drinks. (laughs) With drinks. How much more coffee? Does that sound right? Oh my gosh, it's like nail on the head. Like, wow, like even when we had technical difficulties earlier, like I'm tensing up because I can feel other people like uncomfortable in the room. Mm. Yeah, Ooh. and you're immediately going, "How can I?" You often are asking three questions: What are you feeling? Mm-hmm. How can I help you? Right? Yes. And uh, how do I meet those needs? Yeah. Right. It's like that's always running through the mind of a two. Mm. Well, Are you sure you're not a mind reader? <laughs> no, and it's not even, I didn't even come up with this stuff, but there you go. What's her deadly sin? Uh, it's actually pride. Ah. Uh, it's, yeah. the, it's the belief that I actually know what you need better than you do. Ooh. And I can meet those needs whether you want me to or not. And the belief that I have all the time, treasure, talent, and resources in the world to meet your needs. Mm. Mm. When when you don't, so they have to develop the virtue of humility, which is to say, you know, I ain't got everything. To, to ask the question all the time, is this mine to do? Mm. Is this mine to do? And then three is unifer- universally awesome. So we'll skip yeah. over to four. <laughs> That's right. Three is Jesus, Buddha, all the great Saint Francis. Who knows mm. who else? You know, Mother Teresa. Mm. Anyone else we can pick up? <laughs> so. Uh, the threes are, are known as the achievers? Or performers. Performers. Yeah, sometimes the achievers. Okay. Uh, threes are amazing human beings when they're healthy. Mm. They're driven. They're ambitious. They're goal-oriented. They love to-do lists. They all have memorized David Allen's book, Getting Things Done. 
GTD. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, they have a real, the unconscious motivation is this need to succeed, mm-hmm. to appear successful, mm-hmm. and to avoid failure at all costs. Yes. And so for the three, they, they unfortunately begin to equate success with love. Yes. Mm. And then, so the, if that's the case, you're going to do anything you can to succeed, right? Right. Because we all want that love. You see a world, if you're not very self-aware three, you see a world in which people are only valued for what they do and for what they accomplish rather than for who they are inside. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You're talking about a sociopath. No. <laughs> no, not necessarily. But any number on the Enneagram, when it dives to the unhealthy side, could be a sociopath. Sure. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, and so... A unhealthy three sort of loses their own identity. I mean, in fact, identity is a personality is a a mask, right? In fact, right. the the it derives from the Greek or Latin term that just means mask, yeah, right? Persona. Yeah, and so we're all wearing these masks. I think with the three, it's like a multitude of masks in order to show, especially with the unhealthy three, in order to show other people that I am successful. I am good, worthy, better, whatever you want to call it. Now I have to wear these different masks. Yes. Who am I really? Yeah, that's what happens because your your deadly sin is deceit. And it's not, sometimes a very unhealthy three will deceive other people, right? But usually it's self-deceit. It's like you get confused as to which persona or mask is actually who I am. So Mm. the journey for you is toward authentic selfhood. It's like, I don't need to wear masks. I can be and develop and become the person I actually am and present that to the world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because, you know, we all want to be that person, right? Right. And um, so that's really the the journey for the three. Mm. Well, Ryan's wife is here, Mariah. She is our resident four. Mm. <laughs> and you are also a four. Si, yo soy cuatro. <laughs> <laughs> so si. talk, to, talk to me about, about the four. Yeah, so fours are called the individualists. We think there are le- fewer fours in the population than any other type, which mm. fours absolutely love to hear. The irony is there's three in this room right now. <laughs> they just, I mean, here's the thing about fours. Uh, fours are also probably no they are the most complicated mysterious number on the Enneagram mm. <laughs> which they also love to hear and they're the coolest <laughs> I mean it's true though they, yeah. they really really are yeah. so creative imaginative see the world from completely different angles uh, they uh, are people who are also can be temperamental self-absorbed melancholy mm. uh, and um their unconscious motivation is driven by this belief that there's something essential they're missing in their fundamental makeup that everyone else seems to have Mm. except for them, Mm. right? Mm. And so the way to compensate for the missing piece, which they are constantly on a quest to find, right? Mm -hmm. And so they can be whole and belong in the world. Their their strategy is to be uh, special and unique, Right, as a way, like man, if I if I could just be special and unique enough, it would compensate for the missing piece, and I I would finally find the wholeness and the belonging I've always longed for in the world. Mm. But of course, that all these are failed strategies. Right. By the way, we all have picked that up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, uh, in the new book, the story of you, I talk about how these are fundamentally broken stories. Yes. That need changing. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we we tell these stories because maybe even in the short term it can work. 
you know, if I wear this mask just the right way, I can get what I perceive to be love, going back to the three for a second. If I make it look like I'm successful to this person, then I'll at least get some sort of admiration, applause, and I'll mistake that for love. So in the short term, it will quote unquote work, but that's a broken story because then you get the applause, you get the validation right. and it becomes a type of prison in a way yes and, and the the weird the weird thing about that prison is like those bars are actually the bars of expectation that other people have sort of thrust upon us so like quite often what i'm doing is i'm 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 in the prison cell that you talked about in in your book and you don't even realize that you're you're sitting in that that jail cell of of expectation yeah and so actually it's interesting you said admiration for threes it, you know, for twos, what they want is appreciation, and threes want admiration, mm. which is an entirely different creature. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, and so now, remember, that story helped you as a little kid make sense of the world. It helped you get your needs met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it helped you navigate relationships. So in a way, you have to be grateful for that story. Okay. Back then. Yes. Mm. But if you drag that story into adulthood, yeah. it will make a mess of your relationships, your life, your health. Everything. Right. Right. So how the key is, and this is what the book tries to do, is help you to identify that story and go, I don't want to live that story anymore. I'm exhausted from that story. And it's not about changing your type. It's about changing the story you yes. tell yourself within your, because your, your personality probably is not going to fundamentally change. I suppose it's possible. And we, I'm sure we could find some sort of outlier. Mm-hmm. But by and large, what I've learned from you is that your personality is your personality. The question is, how do you operate within that personality? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I would say that for people that if you can rewrite that story, begin to rewind the unconscious motivation I just described, then you will automatically become the best version of yourself. Like, you don't even have to try. Mm. Does, does that make sense? Like, the green shoots of who you are will just actually become the come up on their own and you'll be like whoa look at me there i am hmm. that's my story yeah i am not someone whose only value in the world is determined or gauged by what i do it's for who i am that's the journey of that three and i got to take off my jacket because if i get it. any hotter i will pass out <laughs> and good. that will be entertaining as hell <laughs> <laughs> so uh, mariah's deadly sin did we cover that uh, yes, and the virtue for the four uh-huh. is equanimity because fours uh, have too many feelings, mm. way too many feelings. Our two and, will grab your jacket now. You see that? That is so quintessentially <laughs> two. Like when I do live Thanks, workshops, buddy. I will go like this, <coughs> and I'll just wait to see who brings me the water. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, it's a great moment when I'm doing it live. I'll go, the two. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Like yeah. they, they just... Pick up on it, and they go to hell. Yeah. All right, then our five is hidden behind this wall Yay. we built yesterday. <laughs> Jordan no more. What the most appropriate place for him to be is what half hidden behind the wall that we have with this artwork. Shout out to Tim over at Wove Arts for building these walls. But um, we did a whole exercise with him in Dallas. That Patrons, that will be out in a few months, I believe. Uh, mm. I think March is when we're putting that event out. But... Um, Let's walk some folks through Jordan. We even brought him on stage, which was um, sort of atypical for a five. Sometimes. uh, Some fives can do it, but they're not as easily as you can. Mm, Right. You're a natural on stage. You're a natural on stage. Mm. For fives, it's a a little bit more awkward, Mm. right? So uh, typically introverted, but for sure analytical, incredibly observant. Um, 
these are people who uh, find that relationships in the world can be very draining. Mm-hmm. It's not that they don't love people. I'm just saying that they they have a they don't believe that they have the inner resources to meet the, all the demands that life will place on them. Mm. So their way of, of sort of defending themselves, you know, against the anxiety of that is really to just consume vast amount of knowledge and information. <laughs> That's just, definitely Jordan. They yeah. just can't stop. Uh-huh. And really it's a way to fend off feelings of ine- inadequacy and ineptitude and mm. the fear that they would be brought up short if somebody asked them the question they don't know how to answer, mm. right? So they also need tremendous amounts of time alone uh, to recharge. Being around people for too long is really draining on a five. Uh, and so they wrestle with isolation, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they're incredible human beings when they're healthy, but when they're not, they, they can really be too detached. They're, they can become very emotionally detached. Sometimes I've, I've had a five say to me that sometimes you look in the face of a five and you'll think you're looking into a blank computer screen. Oh, You know wow. what I mean? Like, oh. there's, like you don't feel the emotional connect. It's like that number lives up in the brain far. We call it the castle of the mind. They live so much up in the mind that sort of a little detached from their their feelings and even from their mm. own body, like when they're not very healthy, that you, you start to feel like they're a brain on a stick. So it masks oh, the emotions. Wow. And so yeah, you, there's a stoicism about Jordan. Yes. That um, even if he has that emotion, it doesn't necessarily come to the surface. I mean, right. there are times where no matter what you do, the emotion will break through. But by and large, you can see that particular stoicism in him. Yes. They're amazing, like emergency room doctors. Oh, wow. Right? Because it's not like me, I'm a four. Like, if, if someone comes in with a screwdriver in their neck, sorry, that was weird. <laughs> um, but if they did, let's say, <laughs> then like you're a little too I'm going to sit down and write a song or a poem about it and weep in the corner. Okay. <laughs> and people will love the poem, but the patient will bleed out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and whereas the five doesn't get emotionally involved, it's like, oh, okay, screwdriver in the neck. Here are the five protocols we're going to follow. And it's very detached. And it's like they just get it done. Mm. They save lives that way. Mm. Right? Yeah. Uh, and then, but you might feel when when they come to tell the family about the prognosis of the patient that they're not emotionally connected to it. Right. And so, you know, part of the journey from them is to move from the deadly sin of avarice because they tend to be people who hoard knowledge and then eventually when they're unhealthy, begin to hoard uh, love and affection from the very people who want to support and love them in life. Mm. Right? What do you mean? Yeah. They, they hoard the love and affection of the people who want to support them. What, what does that well, look like? Well, they, they have a scarcity mindset generally, uh, and they need to develop an abundance mindset mm-hmm. that they have the resources, that the world is pl- it's plenitude, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes what they do is they can become so isolated and so de- uh, it's like being ind- fiercely independent and self-sufficiency is really important to the, the five. Mm-hmm. So they might begin to hoard uh, time, energy, uh, resources, feelings uh, from from other people, and they need to learn to practice this posture of generosity, mm-hmm. of opening themselves up, coming out of the, the castle of the mind, lowering the drawbridge, and, and starting to not just observe life from a distance, mm-hmm. but to actually participate in it. Mm. It's funny you mentioned the absorbance of knowledge or the, absor- the absorbance of knowledge. Um, his Instagram handle is Jordan No More. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is just you can't make it up yeah. can you, you can't no yeah k-n-o-w <laughs> yeah uh moving on from the fives to the sixes right next to jordan no more is podcast sean Podcast, and Sean. He's the one who doesn't know his type. Is Which that is appropriate for a six? Absolutely. <laughs> Oftentimes, at the end of a sh- at the end of a workshop, someone will come up and they'll say. You know, I've listened to all nine types. I ident- identify with all nine types. I'm just not sure which is my my type. Mm. And uh, usually, it's a six. I go, "Are you a six? <laughs> Maybe a six? Yeah. You know, not always right, but oftentimes I am." Mm. Yeah. The, these folks are called the loyalists. They're practical. They're earthy. You know, they're reliable. They're they're wonderful human beings, right? But their mm. deadly sin is fear. Mm. And uh, how that plays out is the, the six is uh, someone who is really looking to feel safe, secure, and supported in a world that feels dangerously chaotic and unpredictable. Mm. Okay. And so, they're the people that tend to be worst case scenario thinkers. Mm. I have a friend of mine who uh, is a six, and he likes to say that we sixes suffer from pre-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> like they're, they're always anticipating what could go wrong. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, why? Because they feel like if I can rehearse in my mind everything that could go wrong and prepare for it, then I'll be safe in a in a chaotic and unpredictable world. Mm. And that serves them to a point because there, there, there's some truth in that. If you prepare, yeah. Then you're more prepared. I mean, uh, it's a uh, yeah. it's a tautological approach to it, but yes, if you prepare enough, then you can handle more chaotic, more difficult right. situations. Right. The key is that you can never prepare enough as a six. Exactly, exactly. Mm. By the way, Ryan, do you notice he just used the word tautological? I did. Yes, and. You know, I remember reading the book and then being on a pod. He was on our po- my podcast, yeah. and I remember thinking he has used five words that most humans do not use yes. in the course of a lifetime yeah. during yeah. this conversation. Mm. I just want to applaud that. Everyone applaud. Yes. Let's applaud. Yeah, we can applaud <laughs> for tautological <laughs> people. Tautological. There it was thrown out there. Yeah. <laughs> I admire you. Uh, right now, I admire you. Uh, so uh, I feel loved. There you go. <laughs> no, so, but, but the six is fantastic, right? But the, of course, the problem is, as you said, that there's not enough courage that you can, you know, mm. glean in the world from that, that strategy, mm-hmm. right? And so the journey for them is to move from really a, a place of fear, and I'm going to use a a, a spiritual word, not a religious word, is just faith. Mm-hmm. Faith that, because faith that, uh, well, to use a quote from Houston Smith, who was a genius, the belief that we are in good hands, mm. that we are in good hands. And yeah. That, that's a, a, a wonder. In fact, when they're healthy, they, they start to look like a very healthy nine at peace in the world with a sense that. All shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, Sean, I think very neatly fits into the sixth category in many ways with the, um, especially a healthy six. Mm-hmm. When, when you look at you know, the, the loyalist part and um, just being, I'm trying to find the best way to describe this. Give me some of the adjectives that would describe a six again. Uh, earthy, practical, oftentimes practical. very witty. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right. Practical, witty, yeah. um, loyal. I mean, he's like a six with a six wing. Wow. I mean, he, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he's super practical, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, has a, a sort of penchant for, for being behind the scenes, getting everything right. What's his, what's his deadly sin? Fear, right? Fear okay. and the virtue would be faith. 
Okay. Mm. Uh, ooh, fascinating. So the virtue is... Which is an thing. antidote, really, to the deadly sin. Ah, oh, uh, I yes. like that. What a great way to put it. Yeah. So I've been looking for a reason to bring this up, but when we were in Dallas, you talked about how America was at this three. I don't, I don't remember if you said it was healthy or unhealthy, but it was mm-hmm. a three. And now you feel like America is moving towards an unhealthy six. Yes. That was like the biggest cliffhanger ever. Because <laughs> if we were going to circle back to what we never did. So can you maybe ex- expand on kind of what sure. you meant by that? Well, think about the Horatio Alger story. Okay. I, uh, you know, which is the, what part of the great American mythology, right? It's like, we can do better than our parents. We can succeed. We can get ahead. We can, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it's all about, you know, we live in America, which is a very, uh, very image conscious country. Mm-hmm. Uh, threes tend to be very image conscious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all about success and getting ahead and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And looking successful. Right. And it's very forward thinking. Like, threes live in the future mm-hmm. they're always thinking about what we could do next and how it could be better than what we're doing now it's freaking successful. miserable mm. yeah it can be exhausting yeah. right? but when you go to the low side of six we become a country that's more like about fear mm. it's more about how can we make America great again mm. it's like that's not that's now past thinking mm-hmm. versus future oriented it could be better let's go for it six is like how do we pull back go back to institutions and traditions that used to be and of course they romanticize mm. what the 50s used to look like it's nostalgia it's, it's looking at a 3d world through 2d glasses yes exactly and so i think we've, we've kind of moved into an unhealthy six space you know mm. or at least uh, in, the, in recent years i don't know about what we would say now yeah. i think we're just confused now <laughs> but, but we've sort of lost that drive into a very optimistic view of the future and we can do it just got to do these things. Do, 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 mm. you know? yeah. Leaping ahead to, we save the best for last. Of course. Ryan Nicodemus <laughs> is a seven. Oh, I love sevens. An amplified <laughs> seven. And just drinking from the fire hose of life. <laughs> Give me more, more, more. Give me all the fun. I improve this fun with more fun. Yes. You know, make this fun more oh. fun. A shot of this. Oh, right. A I syringe of that. <laughs> a capsule full of this. <laughs> Man oh after my. my own heart. Yeah. For different so, reasons. Right, so if right, you were to right. write a memoir, it'd just be called like a capsule of fun. Yeah. And oh. and uh, you know, obviously the the um, double entendre there, but he he um in any scenario, usually though, in the most sort of what we would consider to be pleasant, good, joyous, it's still looking for how do I get, how do I improve this? Yeah. yeah. So they're called the enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. Yes. Funny, charming, adventurous, always looking into a future filled with unlimited possibilities. <laughs> yes. Right? Oh, and, keep going. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm going to have all of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. In this moment, I am going to jam as many <sighs> fun, sunny. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. but of course, you can get into what we call toxic optimism mm. if you're not careful. Yeah. Right. So, sevens. Um, there are people who um, fundamentally are afraid and averse to having distressing negative feelings, thoughts, or being stuck in situations that they perceive oh, yeah. are negative or painful. Anytime I feel anxious, I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Yeah. And yeah. how do I get out of it? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the deadly sin of that, 
that seven is gluttony because it's like I can't get enough fun, I can't get enough adventures, I can't get enough possibilities, and they, I got to get them all into this moment. They're so future oriented that they can't actually stay in the moment very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for the seven, the journey really is to move from gluttony, which is like a little bit more, 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 yeah. more, to really a place of what we call sobriety, which is not necessarily abstinence from substances or something like that. Right. Really, uh, sobriety is about staying in this moment with whatever is happening, with whatever you are feeling. Yeah. Realizing that, you know, uh, afflictive emotions and thoughts and situations will come and they will go. Mm. And just to be present with them and to allow them to have their way with you so you can become really a person that's not just happy but joyful because joy bakes pain and suffering into its calculations. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I love sevens. I mean, they're they're awesome. When they're healthy, but when yeah. they're not, they can get a little narcissistic. It can, oh, it can, <laughs> that's like my 28 year old self for sure. Yeah. I wasn't Ryan Nicodemus. I was Ryan fucking Nicodemus. <laughs> <laughs> I was Ryan Nicodemus with an exclamation right, mark. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, again, and remember too that we're all nine types. You, we all contain all nine of these types. Mm-hmm. That's such just, an important point. It's yes. just varying degrees, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just that one is more like you than the other eight. Yes. And and it could be that you have, so let, can we pivot real quick and talk about the wings? Cause we often talk, well, I'm, so yeah. I'm a, th- I'm a three with a two wing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what, what are the wings? So and what does that mean? There are two numbers adjacent to yours on the Enneagram diagram. Mm-hmm. So if you're a, a three on the Enneagram, you could have a four wing or a two wing. If you're a seven, you could have an eight wing or a six wing. Mm. Can't be any other number, any other numbers except one of the two on either side of your type. Uh-huh. All it means oh, is wow. that your, your wing kind of um, you always be your type but your your wing kind of flavors you with some of the resources and the challenges and the strengths mm. of your wing mm. right so if you're a seven with a six wing chances are you would be a little bit less uh, impulsive and um, a, a little bit more anxiety mm-hmm uh, and hesitation, whereas the seven with an eight wing is crazy. It's like, you can imagine, they pick up all that aggressive energy and yeah. they can be quite reckless if they're not careful. Mm, you Ryan know, is a seven with an eight wing, for yeah, sure. But not, not because of the recklessness, but because he, he doesn't mind confrontation at all. Like, it doesn't yeah. bother him. He doesn't seek it out. But yeah. So the wing is like what you score second highest on. Not no. necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay, okay. Because I was going to say, when I took the test, it, I was tied for eight and two. As the second, uh, the second. Yeah, so numbers. that would be clear that you're probably an eight wing. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Can I tell you my last gluttonous moment that I had? Please, yes. where I gave into it. Yes. So I'm in Ohio with my lovely wife, and uh, we go to meet my my little sister and, and her partner at an escape room, and it's like two thirty in the afternoon, and we go, we do this escape room, and it was so much fun. It was awesome, and we get out of the escape room. And I'm like, you know, high on like, oh man, we just like solved this puzzle and it was great. And I'm, I'm having time with my sister and her boyfriend and, 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 and Mariah. And oh, this is awesome. I'm like, let's do another one. <laughs> let's, what's next? L- let's escape more. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say escape room. Seven. Mm-hmm. Perfect. <laughs> so long story short, uh, we did three escape rooms that day. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is so seven. And by the third one, I was like. What am I doing? Like I'm like, so exhausted. We had a blast. Yeah, I don't have any regrets as much as uh, like that was like the um, that's like the last time gluttony really took over. And I, you know, if that's the worst that it gets, I'm totally willing to accept that. Yeah. yeah, I meet a lot. You know, I've been in recovery from a drug and alcohol addiction, 
and and I meet a lot of sevens in twelve step rooms. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I most, imagine the most. Yeah, well, mm. yeah, because it's like, you know, if if the, it's the most efficient route for having to be able to escape painful feelings, mm-hmm. painful realities, painful in truths moment. in a second. Yeah. Right, you don't have to go to an escape room. You can stay in your room and pop an oxy. Yeah, you know right, saying? exactly. Oh yeah, <laughs> and escape. I mean, my, my preference was snorting oxy, but whatever. Okay, whatever. <laughs> That's okay. You know, whatever whatever delivery route you want to use is fine. Can we can we talk about the Enneagram versus the Myers Briggs? Both of which I found incredibly helpful mm-hmm. for different reasons. We were doing a little party trick earlier. Ryan was like, "I bet Josh can tell you what where you are on the Myers Briggs without and you even were right. asking." Mm-hmm. Well, the fascinating thing: you and I are exact opposite. So I'm an ISTJ. You're an ENFP, right? Now, um, not to get too deep into the Myers Briggs, but what are some of the differences, and where do they complement each other, and how can it be helpful to understand both? Listen, I like any tool that helps people develop self knowledge and self awareness. Mm. So I am in favor of Strengths Finders. I am in favor of Disc and Colby and Hogan and the Enneagram. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's all great. Um, the, I think, and I'm not an expert on Myers-Briggs, but, but I would say that, uh, part of the thing with it is, is that the, like the Enneagram, like I said, does reveal what's best about you and what's worst about you. Like if you're looking for flattery, mm-hmm. you probably don't want to play with the Enneagram. Right. Right. But no, that's, that's helpful, true. man. Like you got to face your shadow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember I read your, your, your last book, uh, The Road Back to You. And yeah. I'm like, oh, this is kind of. Oh, this is very revealing. Yeah. I don't like Ian right now. <laughs> but, 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 but like I said, the, the number and its healthiest expression is exquisitely beautiful. Yes. Right? Now, the, but I would say that you have to look at the shadow side of the type. You, you're not going to grow until you face the truth about who you are. That's right. Mm, you know, the, the biggest yeah. enemy of spirituality is unreality. Ooh. Not Tweet living that. in real. Right? So, I, you know, again, I think, I don't know a ton about Myers-Briggs, but... I would say that uh, I'm not sure if it uh, sort of takes into account that the human personality is fluid, dynamic, and adaptive. Mm -hmm. Meaning that, you know, when you're under stress, you're a different person. Your personality must change Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. under stressful conditions to accommodate reality versus, you know, what you're like when you're secure and happy or in a place that you're in a good space, Mm -hmm. right? And, And so... That's why we say to people all the time, like, oh, man, I you know Ryan's not himself today. Well, Oof. it's because you're under stress. Yes. Your personality mm-hmm. changes under stress. Your personality changed earlier when we had tech problems. Yes. Mm-hmm. You went from engaged and charming and smiling, and your personality changed right. to mm-hmm. accommodate new realities in the environment. Uh-huh. Right? And, and sometimes when I get around other typologies, I don't hear enough. It's like the, it gets boxy. Like, okay, you're an ENFP. You're an INTJ. You're this. Yeah. Right? And it's like... To me, it's like, well, there's more to personality than that. And I don't know if I'm actually doing justice to the Myers-Briggs, but that's been my experience with it. I can tell you what's helped me with it. The Enneagram has helped me better understand who I am. Mm. And you were really my first exposure to the Enneagram. I mean, we had done the test or whatever. And in fact, the whole team did a test, except Sean, who refused as a six. Um, (laughs) And... uh, um, There's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> we can unpack that. But the Myers-Briggs really helped me identify the sort of how I can better interact with other people, mm. whether it's Ryan, who's he has a literally the exact opposite personality from me, and yet we interact so well with each other. But part of the reason is it's understanding and respecting, appreciating even mm-hmm. that difference. Oh, he's an extrovert. Of course he gets energy from being around other mm. people. But 
where I went wrong in my past life is when I didn't understand my own personality. I tried to be, well, I should be more like the extrovert. Mm, I should be more feeling and less thinking. Mm. I should be more in the moment, like Ryan's the P, the perceiving versus the J, the judging, where I'm future-oriented. And what I realized, like, oh, these two can actually complement each other quite a bit. Totally. As opposed to, you know what? I should be more in the moment. Well, good luck that it, with that. Like, imagine telling someone, "All right, go ahead and live in the moment." All right, ready, set, go. I'm going to set my timer. <laughs> live in the moment, Ian. Right. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't work like that. Mm. Like, you can be in the moment, but it's not prescriptive. And so, anytime that I've tried to prescribe some sort of, well, three ways to be more extroverted or three ways to be right. whatever else, it it always put me in trouble because it made me try to be someone I wasn't and no wonder it was making me miserable. Right. Yeah. And do you see, by the way, though, that um, the, the, the descriptions that I've given of each of these types, um, that they are, to circle back around, broken stories. Mm-hmm. Those, that story helped you as a little kid growing up in a traumatic world. Yeah. And... Being the sunny optimist was probably a role you played in the family. Mm. Uh, it's like yeah. you could reframe things. Oh, so this happened? Well, you know, the good side of that is mm. this. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And But when you drag that into adulthood, that old story, it begins to really work against you. What helped you in childhood works against you in adulthood. Yeah. You need a new story, mm-hmm. right? Now, you've done some of that work, but can you imagine if I had given you a book back in the day and I said, that's a broken story. You can rewrite it. Mm. It would have been very scary. It, but it, it also would yeah. have saved you a lot of time. It would have, yeah. But I mean, but just the idea of especially being raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh. I mean, so it's, right. yeah, I um, it's it's so wild how the, the unreality is the enemy of spirituality. And um, yeah, that's what I was doing leading mm. up to that point. So telling me that my reality was unreality, like it would have been nerve wracking. But yeah, you're right. It would save me a whole lot of car crashes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, let's check in with the live stream. Alabama. Do we have any uh, questions? Alabama. From <laughs> our own Peter Sagal right here in the room. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We have a question from Brianna. Do you think that typically when people learn about their Enneagram type, they are tempted to cling to that type and become more like it. For example, as a seven, I will find myself always looking into the future, but instead of changing it, I might just say, that's just a seven in me. Mm. Yeah, that is that part of what the Enneagram does for you is help you stop that, mm. right? It's like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with being future-oriented, right? That's fine, right. as long as that's not the only place you live, uh-huh. right? So, you know, for a seven to say, you know what, mm, I need to bring balance into my life, which means learning how to also live in, in a generative relationship with both the present and the past. Right. To be able to live in all three spaces, mm-hmm. right, equally in some way or another, and depending on the moment. So, you know, using your type as an excuse for poor behavior is not what the Enneagram is for, uh-huh. right? So that's how I would probably respond to that. Yeah. What else we got? Anita says, have Josh and Ryan changed their behavior or thought patterns after talking to Ian about their Enneagrams? Mm. I mean, yeah, definitely. I changed my approach towards some thoughts. Even the whole parenting comment you made earlier is like going to help me look at, you know, my my thoughts in a different way. Mm. So, yeah, I love talking to Ian because, like I said, it's my own little personal therapy session. And I always leave with a different perspective on 
the feelings and emotions that arise within me. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think what, what the Enneagram does is it gives you the fodder for self-awareness. Yeah. Oh, this is why I do what I do, and I have choices yeah. I can make not to cooperate with those parts of my personality that are self-defeating. Yeah. I don't have to co-sign that bullshit mm. right. anymore. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I could tell you that as a three, success was always a big thing for me throughout my 20s, especially because we didn't have it growing up. Ryan and I grew up really poor, and I thought, well, we're unhappy. You know how I can be happy if I'm just successful? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we spent a dozen years climbing the corporate ladder, and I became successful by societal standards, right? Six-figure salary, luxury mm -hmm. cars, plural, mm -hmm. big suburban house, uh, all the accoutrements within the home, you know, 300,000 items in my house, just like everyone else in America, the average house has 300,000 things in it. And so by all accounts, I was successful, but I wasn't. I was broke in more ways than one. I was in tons of debt, so I was broke financially, but I was also broken mm -hmm. in here. Yeah. And I was so broken because I was trying to be successful. I was trying to project an image. If I could just get you to admire me, then I'll feel loved. Yes. And of course, I'll do everything I can to get you to admire me. But now all of a sudden I, that I've done that, now this person actually dislikes me. Yeah. So now I have to work really hard to make sure this person really admires me. And maybe wear a mask me. to get yes. that person to do it. Right. And so, and so I have to wear these different masks and I lost sight of who I was. In fact, I got to a point where I didn't even know where I was anymore. Our second book, which is called Everything That Remains, the first line of it is, our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. Yes. Mm. And I used to wear these different sort of costumes in a way, or the way you would say it is, I used to wear a mask. Look at me, I am successful. I will show you by my outward appearance, by my behavior, that I'm this type of person. And I need you to feel this right. way about me. Mm. Right. It was quite the prison to be stuck in. Yeah, and you know it's yeah. contextual, right, for threes. So in other words, yeah, you could become the CEO of, you know, Goldman Sachs, but if you were in a mafia family in Brooklyn, you would aspire to be the Don. Mm. So it's not, people tend to think, oh, it's because I want to be, you know what I mean? Like it's not, it, it's all contextual, right? It's not just based on I want to be rich or the, you know, if you were a social activist, you might say, I want to be the most killing social activist ever. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be the poorest person. I'm going to be the person who most identifies with the poor. Mm. And you know what I mean? Yes. It's, so it's not, people have to understand, it's not just a success is contextual and how the three interacts with that is, is important. Mm. I think what's fascinating about, about that is, you know, I even had a whole plan when I was in the corporate world. I was going to be a vice president by 32, a senior vice president by 35, COO by age 40, right? Like that was the, the whole thing. And as I got closer to those guys who I aspired to be like, I realized that they were kind of miserable because they were all threes as well. Mm. At least most of them were. And they had climbed the, the ladder. They had become successful. But the closer you get, you realize like, oh, something's off here. Yeah. Maybe there's a, a mask that's covering up what's really going yeah, on. Yeah, that's called the ladder leaning against the wrong wall. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, you know, again, it makes sense you adopted that story as a child and mm -hmm. it helps you get through, but, you know, drag that puppy into adulthood and you don't rewrite it. Yeah. And you're still stuck in it. Mm. Yikes, that's a children's story. Yeah. Yeah. Melody has a question for us. Yay. 
<laughs> I grew up in the 60s and as a young adult heard a lot about people finding themselves. Is it possible to actually lose yourself amidst these stories? Right now I'm 61 and I'm still not sure who I am. Yeah, welcome to earth. <laughs> First of all, can you lose yourself? Sure. Mm. Yourself can get buried under just layers and layers of all kinds of stuff in life, right? So for sure you can lose yourself. Can you find yourself? I would argue that that's a process. Well, human, well, I would argue that human beings are processes. Essentially, they're processes. They're constantly evolving, constantly growing. You will not be the same person tomorrow or even in an hour from now that, that you are right now. Mm. So you are a, a process. You are in motion. So when people say, I'm going to find myself, it's like, really? It's like, well, the moment you find myself, yourself, it will change. Yes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think it's the journey toward wholeness and and toward a uh, an inner world that's characterized by self-knowledge, self-love, and, and not in service to narcissistic stuff, but really in service to loving others, to live in the world more beautifully in service to w- what uh, we would hope the world could be, mm. right? So, you know, not knowing yourself is kind of common. I, don't, I wouldn't say I know myself. Mm. I know, I know uh, because I've spent a lot of work on it, I probably know myself better than people who haven't done that work. But to think that you're ever going to arrive there and go, ta-da, like, and the lights are going to go on yeah. is kind of like a fool's errand. You're right. Yeah, I totally agree. Because when I look at something like the Enneagram, it doesn't help me find myself as much as it like has a path towards finding myself. Yes. Yes, exactly. And you know, we're all a little bit like the stock market, aren't we? Mm-hmm. It's like it goes up and down, but you got to watch the trend over time. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right? right. Yeah. And so yeah. if you watch your trend over time, I think that's what's important. Like, am I continuing to move toward becoming the highest expression of who I am mm-hmm. or not? Yeah. 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 That's what I'd say. When someone says they're trying to find themselves, they've lost themselves, quite often that translates to I feel incomplete. In yeah. some way. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons, this isn't the only reason, but one of the reasons we feel incomplete is because the people and the organizations, the corporations, the advertisers around us have incompleted us. Yes. They've told us we're inadequate. By the way, we're already good enough at telling ourselves we're inadequate. We don't need yeah. the help of yeah. these corporations, although they create a problem in order to sell you a solution, right? Mm-hmm. And so, the only real solution is understanding that you're already complete. Yes. Mm. There's already a complete human being there. You don't need to do anything different. You don't need to become someone else. You can become someone else, and you likely will become someone else. But the needing to become someone else is another t- type of prison that we've created for ourselves. Absolutely. And mm. so I think for this question in particular for Melody, And this can apply to anyone, whether they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. We had a 92-year-old show up at our San Diego event a few years ago, and she said, I'm 92, and I'm finally simplifying my life. Mm. And what I heard from that was, I'm finally finding myself. I'm removing the excess clutter. Now, for her, it it started with physical clutter, but then it was looking inside and realizing like, oh, 
I have all these broken stories that have broken me as a person because I've been telling myself that I'm this kind of person and these things outside of me will make me better, will make me improved, will make me different, will make me whole. And as soon as I accept that as nonsense, yeah. mm. then I can look inward and say, oh, maybe yeah. I'm already complete. Yeah. So, yeah, I think preparing broken stories begins with realizing the emperor has no clothes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And calling it. Yeah. Right. And then saying, well, who do I want to be? Yes. Right? Yeah. What kind of story do I want to inhabit? Yeah. Angie has a question for us. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I was so involved in the conversation. My apologies. <laughs> <laughs> How do you reinvent yourself and rewrite your story after a traumatic breakup or other life-changing events? Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a, it is a great moment of opportunity, right? When we smack a wall. Uh, and we realize uh, that's the gift, right? That's the gift of crisis. Mm. Now, in the book, The Story of You, I talk about, for me, a four-stage process, which is to see the old story, right? To really unpack it. I, I'm a big believer in journaling. Like, I think people should write mm. this stuff down. And mm. they hate it when I say that because they all want to hack you know, like, can you, can it be easier than that? It's like, no, we're talking about your damn life. I mean, right. could you not invest a little time in rewriting this story? Yeah, but what are the three steps? Right, right. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, God, don't even get me started on that. Mm. Anyway, so to see the story you've been living in, right? Then to own what it's done to you and done to others. What has it cost you? And both mm. of you have talked about what living in broken stories meant for you and what it cost you. That's right. right. Then to awaken, to say, oh, you know, to have that moment of awakening and say, is this the story I want to live? No. What are the things that trigger and launch me into that story over and over again? And by the way, when you rewrite your story, listen, this, these old stories are so deeply embedded in our freaking brains. It's like, it's not like, oh, throw it out like Marie Kondo. Like, let's just throw out everything, you know, and then <laughs> suddenly everything's free. It's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's like these things get triggered and they launch and then you have the self-awareness to go and to be awake enough to say "Uh uh-oh i'm back in the old story time Mm. to you know change back into the new one and then to rewrite is to really sit down and to look at your values who do i want to be what kind of person would my 80 year old self be proud of and how do i write that story you know, uh, and to really go through that process. And I talk about in the book, well, you know, and in the workbook, like how do I actually sit down and begin to, to do that work? And I'm just telling you, it, it's like, it's life-giving. Mm-hmm. You are the narrator of your damn story. Take, take ownership of it. Mm. And if you rewrite that story, as you said, quite often you will fall back into old patterns. It oh, only course, makes yes. sense. We've, we've lived that story for so long. It becomes a place of comfort. Or we're just so used to it that we don't even recognize that that is even our story that we've been telling ourselves in the first place. Yeah, well, and what our friend was saying here was Melanie, I guess, was like... this is Yeah, I think this one is Angie. Oh, Angie. Sorry, Angie. I, <laughs> I just ascribed to you a different story. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, like the, in that moment of crisis, right, there is fear. And part of the fear is, is the old story is gone. And who am I if I'm not that story? Mm-hmm. Mm. Who am I if I'm not so-and-so's partner? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Maybe I'm nobody. Maybe I'm nobody. And that then becomes the opportunity, mm. right? It's like, yeah. how, do I, how do I not be nobody? Right. 
it, I, I, maybe the, the opportunity of it's like, it's not that I'm a nobody, it's a clean slate. Yeah. And now this is the opportunity for a new, more empowering story yeah. that I'm going to be able to use now and, and potentially yeah. in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do mm. one more question here. How about we look at, hmm, how about Katie's question? Ooh. How do I overcome a toxic relationship with a parent so we can let go of our contentious past? Mm, it will require the cooperation of the parent. Mm-hmm. And if that fails, then it might require boundary setting. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's so easy for us to believe that we can actually change other people, and it's impossible. The, mm-hmm. the only people we can change are, is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And even that's damn hard, right? So what makes us think we can actually change other human beings? We can't. That's why I love Al-Anon, by the way, you know, like the, which is the support yeah. group for people who are in relationship with addicts mm-hmm. and alcoholics. Yeah. It's because it says, don't bother trying to change that person. Work on yourself. Yeah. And that's yeah. the only way that I think you're going to be able to live in, in a positive relationship with that person. If the toxicity becomes too self-damaging, or just not too self-damaging, but just damaging, then you have to erect the proper boundaries to protect yourself and the relationship. Like, like a good boundary will protect the relationship from imploding, right? So all that stuff is, you know, um, really important. But it's to give up the idea that she can actually change, uh, but to maybe create the environment in which the possibility of change would be more probable. Um, but I think people are often like, how do I, ch-? what they're really asking is how do I change that person right. in order yes. to make this relationship better and you can't? Yeah. I, th- I think that like when I think about, familial familial relationships that I have kind of issues with uh, the question I ask is how can I accept that person for who they are and like not patronize them but um, be agreeable with them as much as I can as long as it doesn't go outside of my values like <laughs> so we were just in Ohio for Thanksgiving and um, my brother uh, him and I were like butting heads the whole time and there was one particular time where um, he was like you know you guys should start selling minimalist t-shirts. And I'm like, (laughs) you think we as the minimalist should start selling t-shirts? He's like, yeah. He's like, why wouldn't you? And I'm like, because I'm not really passionate about it. I don't feel like I can do, I can do a t-shirt better. Um, you know, our whole thing is kind of anti-consumerism and like, I mean, he really like came at me because I shot down his idea. Right. And what I realized later is if I would have taken the approach of like, Oh, what my brother's trying to do, he's trying to add value to my life. He's trying to give me an idea that um, he's, he's trying to contribute toward, towards my life, essentially. So there's a way that I could look at him and be like, oh, T-shirts, interesting. Tell me more. Tell me more. Or I'll, yeah, so how would you do a T-shirt and like really get him involved yeah. instead of shutting him down? And the same thing goes with my mother where, you know, she will, um, she's been, she's like, would send me a bunch of conspiracy theory stuff. Oh boy. And I used to look at it and say, hey, here's why you might not want to take, you know, this, this video was gospel. Uh, and she would, and it seemed to change her. Oh, thank you for sharing that. What do you think about this video? And then I'd respond back. Well, here, here's what you want to consider there. Oh, what about this? And then I realized I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. I'm just enabling her. You know, she doesn't want to do the work to analyze these things herself. She wants me to do the work for her and I'm not willing to do that. Um, so she stopped sending me videos and then recently started sending me the conspiracy stuff. Just listen to the last 10 minutes of this, you know. Promise me you'll listen to this. Yeah, but, oh, yeah. But, but that might require a boundary. And that and that's exactly what has happened. So with my mom, I'm like, hey, please don't send this stuff. And then she sent it one more time. And I was like, mom, I love you. I know that you're trying to help. And this is my way of showing her, hey, I, I accept who you are as a person, 
but there's something that I need to like be clear on right now. And, right. and it's that I'm not going to watch any of these videos. So setting that boundary while showing my mom, I accept her. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Sounds like an interesting video title. I'm still not going to watch it though. So showing her that like there is a level of acceptance, but also setting that boundary has helped her and I get along much, much yeah. better. Yeah, Even well, this last time we were together, like yeah. I, I don't think we've gotten along this well in a long time. Yeah. But if it's a, an abusive, really toxic relationship, mm -hmm. that, that might require a provisional uh, boundary that might have to require separating from that person. Of course. Yes. Yeah. A, a loving them from a distance. Yes. Because to try to change someone is to unlove them. I don't think we realize that. We we believe in conditional love in our right. culture. Hey, I love you, Ian, if you change these seven things about you. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's not love. That just in fact that's hate in a in right. a way. It's hey, if I can change you to make you exactly how the person I want you to be, like you're some sort of Barbie doll or something, then I will love you. But love doesn't work like that. Love has to do with seeing someone for who they are without trying to change them, accepting them for who they are. You may not like every piece of them. Now, the other thing to consider here is maybe the toxic person in the relationship is you. Not you specifically, Ian, but, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> but quite often what happens in a toxic relationship is the two people are perfectly fine on their own. There's no toxicity there. But when they come together, they create some sort of chemical reaction. And it's easy to blame that other person. Look, this explosion happened because of you. No, it happened because of me and you. Mm. Us coming together created this. Yeah. Your mom wouldn't be sending you these, these uh, conspiracy videos if you didn't exist, right? right? Yeah. Now, and if you didn't set up the boundary, then you would be adding to the toxicity. If you're like, yeah. oh, yeah, well, let me argue these seven points against that or whatever. Right. Especially, I could see Danny doing this as an eight. <laughs> he, he could, well, let, let me actually shut this down. I'll, I'll describe to you why you're wrong or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or Bex might do that. Here, here's a, actually the right way to do this is this, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And and what where we go with that is we're accidentally, without knowing it, creating an environment that becomes toxic. Right. Yeah. We yeah. always have to own what our piece might be. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things that for me creates that toxicity that makes me the toxic person is that when my mom does something to me, I say, oh, she doesn't understand. She doesn't get me. She doesn't consider me. And what I realize is like, wait a minute. Like, am I considering her? Am I trying to get her? And as soon as I started to look outward with that, like that is when it started to get a little bit more calm where I'm like, Oh, okay. Like she has her own stuff. I'm going to try and respect her stuff, her perspective. And then maybe she'll do the same for me. And mm. it, it has for the most part worked. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. Mm. And I want to acknowledge you. Yeah, Tell man. people to check out your new book. It is called the story of you. You can also check out Ian's podcast. It's called typology. We'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. Also ianmorgancron.com for all of his social media, his website, his newsletter, all that fun stuff. Yeah, thank you for being here today, brother. I, you know, I love being awesome, with man. you guys. Likewise. I would, I would travel a long way. Oh, wait a minute, I did. Uh, <laughs> to hang out with you guys. I really mean that. This is our third um, time together, and you make me wish I lived in California. <laughs> Come where, on out. <laughs> where I could hang with you guys yeah. all the time. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. That would be great, man. Let's make it happen. Yeah. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you soon. See ya. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need
Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it